Hello and welcome to the Talkspot. Our last episode was recorded live at the recent Factor Conference in Brisbane, Australia, which was a great conference, and one of the sessions there was focusing on medicinal cannabis, which is a really complex issue. The science is complex, but also the social and legal issues surrounding its use are complex. And as part of that session, I chaired a panel discussion, which you'll hear in this episode. The panel was made up of some experts in different aspects of medicinal cannabis. Associate Professor Vicky Cozzarillas, who was Australia's first authorised prescriber of medicinal cannabis and has done a lot of work in this area. Professor Olaf Drummer of the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. Professor Thomas Kramer of the Zurich Institute of Forensic Medicine. And Dr Samuel Bannister of the University of Sydney. Because this was an Australian conference, there was some discussion of the current situation in Australia, but also some more general discussion about the use of cannabis in medicine. And the panel followed a couple of keynote presentations, which get referred to a couple of times during the panel discussion, one by Vicky on the history and the current use of medicinal cannabis, and another by Olaf on the effects of cannabis on driving performance. We tried to cover a lot of different aspects in the panel discussion, but there's so much to say about this subject, I feel like we still only scratched the surface. Okay, here we go. So let's talk about medicinal cannabis. Uh, We've had two excellent keynotes, but there's still a lot more to say. There's a lot of questions uh, still to be answered. So let's start perhaps with talking about the current situation. It's obviously very complex in terms of the things that are available at the moment. We've got some registered products. We've got a lot of unregistered products. Vicky, how well do you think doctors, prescribers understand the the current situation in terms of what's available? So we've got only two registered products and we've got over 100 unregistered products available through the TGA that doctors can access for our patients. And the process is extremely complex. Um, That probably uh, would have been another great lecture to provide. So what I mentioned earlier is the first is to register with the TGA. And once we've registered, you saw the platform that I showed you. Most doctors apply for a special access B for a permit. And that involves several pages of filling out forms because you've got to clinically justify why this patient's got to trial this product. Uh, If you're an authorised prescriber through a human research ethics committee like myself, You do a lot of that work beforehand, and once you have it approved, it's a lot quicker to prescribe with just a prescription. But to navigate the doctor around all of that, to get there, uh, to educate them and implement it in their practice is extremely hard because it can take anywhere from 15 minutes to half an hour to do, and GPs just don't have that time. So short answer is it's a complex system and needs a lot of education. But the difference is the TGA has now made it available for those patients in need as a last resort treatment. And can any doctor at the moment prescribe medicinal cannabis? Yes, any doctor in Australia, specialist or GP, can prescribe it and some nurse practitioners. So there's a lot of information out there as well, obviously. Part of the problem seems to be there's a lot of what we might call lower quality evidence, anecdotal evidence, uh, some in vitro stuff and things like that, and not as much of the really gold standard, you know, double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trials. What's the reason why there's not so many of those? 
So um, there are a few double-blind placebo-controlled trials, but they're of small numbers and short duration. And the main reason is the cost. So even for a pharmaceutical drug, drug for the company to, to get their drug registered, uh, you're looking at millions of dollars. And these medicinal companies, even though they're making a lot of money through shares, are just not putting the money into their um, their product to be tested. So there is definitely a lack of high quality studies. Um, there are so there are some trials, and the TGA website is a really good source of information. So I've given you the links there to the TGA website, and they've got a number of documents and have listed a number of the significant trials. It's a little bit outdated; it's about one to two years behind but it's pretty good. So if there's a good starting point, would be the TGA website, Therapeutics Goods Administration. Sam, from a drug development perspective, medicinal cannabis seems to be a little bit different to other drugs in that normally we're isolating a single compound and we're looking specifically at that compound and how it affects things. Whereas here we have a whole range of different products and uh, sometimes we're looking at one of the compounds, sometimes we're looking at the whole group of compounds. Does that really complicate things from a drug development point of view? Yeah, it's exponentially harder to bring combinations of drugs to market than, than single drugs. Um, and, and following on from Vicky's point about the cost of these trials, you know, to run a phase three trial and, and get your um, NDA ready for the FDA, you know, you're looking at tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. And I think, um, unless I'm mistaken, the FDA has only approved um, dronabinol, which is synthetic THC, many years ago, and GW Pharmaceuticals is kind of an outlier there too because they developed Epidiolex. Um, Epidiolex, which is just pure CBD in a you know allegedly proprietary formulation, costs um, Drave and, and Lennox Gusto patients tens of thousands of dollars a year, and they can go buy an equivalent, not exactly equivalent, but you know pseudo equivalent product from any dispensary in the US for, for much cheaper than that. So the idea of like someone running a, a rigorous, you know, placebo control, blinded trial for any indication all the way through phase three for a herbal product that contains, you know, at least two and maybe 140 or so different active compounds is, is pretty unlikely, I think. So because of that, should we be focusing more on single compound products? Vicky, what's your perspective on that as a prescriber? No. No, <laughs> because of the entourage effect that I mentioned. Uh, my, I'm not sure about how you feel, Sam. I initially did try for CBD alone as a compounding uh, substance because it was a lot easier to, to prescribe that for patients. And I now have moved into the whole herb extract. And as Olaf mentioned, there are cannabis plants that are CBD dominant and same with THC dominant. And I don't know why or understand why. It may be a combination of those phytocannabinoids. Um, I've seen better effects amongst my patients, more favourable effects. However, it is easier to test for single CBD uh, products and I have actually seen also benefit there, but I've moved more into the the whole herb extract and the different ratios that come with it of CBD to THC. And there may be also other phytocannabinoids that we don't know about having benefits, just we haven't tested it. 
Vicky, I want to ask you, uh, the entourage effect is something very important. We know that. On the other hand, it is a chance and a risk at the same time because uh, if something positive happens, we do not know why. Because of a combination, we do not really know what it is. And if something bad happens, then it's even worse for the producer of these products. I mean, think about the first uh, medicament we had on the market, uh, Rimona Band, the uh, was an inverse agonist, uh, the CP receptors, and we had so many suicides, and this is still a risk with all the preparations we have. So um, on the one hand, yes, it might be better to, to have the entourage effect, the mixtures. On the other hand, it might be with less risk if we use pure substances, just as a command. So if I could respond to that... Um That's the reason why I emphasize the start low, go slow. So when we prescribe medicinal cannabis, we always start with the lowest dose. And every three days, we ask patients to escalate the dose by a little bit, like, for example, 0.1 mil. And if there should be any adverse event, all they have to do, they don't have to stop it. They just go down to the dosage that didn't have. So no, we don't want to get them to become toxic or have those adverse reactions. Uh, I, because of that safety margin of start low, go slow with the smallest dose, we, we don't see a lot of adverse events. I have, I have, but not serious like the ones you mentioned, but we just ask them to step it back and they seem to not develop a tolerance like opioids. What, what that means is once they're on that one dosage, It, that's all that they need. They stick to that one dosage and it seems to continue to have the same clinical benefits. Olaf, it would certainly make uh, what you were talking about easier in terms of detecting whether someone's been taking medicinal cannabis or uh, street cannabis while they were driving if it was just pure CBD that was medicinal cannabis. Yes, but as you've heard, and then I agree, um, CBD by itself is not as effective as combinations. And it's not just the THC, and I've seen evidence of some of the phytocannabinoids having supposed you know, effects in, to improve the outcome rather than, than not. So, and then the CBN as well. Um, but yeah, look, analytically, it's, it is a terribly hard task, but um, we just, you know, need to get more information if there is ever possible to distinguish um, whatever forms eventually evolve. Um, beyond now, um, we're not doing any real research at the moment. We're just dabbling in picking up these things in drivers. We don't know anything about what these drivers have been doing by and large. We don't measure too many compounds because, you know, the, the push on it, on just getting cases through and the costs. But um, it'd be nice to focus on some of these and see whether we can, you know, link with some clinical studies and just see whether we can narrow down some of these uh, issues and see whether it can be useful to, at least in some cases, distinguish uh, the two extremes. Speaking of information that's out there, a lot of the information that is out there is not necessarily from academic sources. It's from people who are marketing their own products, claiming things that aren't necessarily right. I know a couple of years ago, I remember the FDA had to give a slap on the wrist to some companies who were saying their products could cure cancer. And there's lots of claims out there, for sure, even covid There's been claims about that. Um, do you think stronger action needs to be taken about these types of claims that are being made in order to 
give more confidence to prescribers and to society in general? Um, here in Australia, we're very lucky because the TGA is pretty good at looking at that sort of thing and they we can't control everything that's out on the internet, unfortunately, with all those claims. You're so right. Patients come in and say, oh, I've heard it can cure this, that, whatever, and I say, hang on, no, 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 no. Uh, the only thing that the TGA can do is they do what's called post-marketing surveillance or auditing on these uh, sponsor products that have been approved here in Australia and they do look at their marketing quality. They can check all that. They can actually go to their premises unannounced and do quality check on their products uh, and they usually do their homework beforehand for marketing, etc. As a general rule, the the products here in Australia won't break the rules because they'll lose the licence and they just can't afford to do that. I'd just add to that. One of the reasons the FDA was set up in the first place was on the back of, you know, 100 years ago, people selling snake oils essentially. You know, this idea that we needed, the US needed at that time, um, a cosmetic and drug purity act. That was essentially the exact reason the FDA was set up to prevent people from marketing things that have no um, serious medical claims. And I feel like we're sort of just repeating history with um, some of the cannabinoids at the moment. You've got people in the UK, for example, selling cannabigerol, CBG, one of these minor cannabinoids. It has, you know, very negligible, you know, beneficial bioactive properties in any human ailment that I've seen evidence for, limited evidence of like some um, bacteria static or antibiotic properties at very high concentrations in very contrived systems, yet people are selling it for, for all sorts of different reasons. We don't really know what it does in people at high doses. Um, yeah, I think it's a lot of it is just snake oil, I think. Do you think there's a difference in what we're seeing with the marketing of medicinal cannabis compared to other drug pro I mean, companies have always marketed drugs, right? Sometimes making claims that are maybe a little stretched from, from what they're entitled to claim. I, I can take it if you like. I don't think this is a question for me. That's okay. more for the, the, <laughs> no. I mean, it's more a question of yeah, what yeah, a general yeah. practitioner. Yeah, yeah. Look, um, you you hit the nail on the head. It could also happen with pharmaceutical drugs, and they also get copped with a fine when they're making claims. So it's across the board, and not just medicinal cannabis, but complementary medicines as well, uh, right across. The whole market, you'll always get your good sponsors who are doing the right thing and then you'll get the bad ones. Um, just for point of clarification, the FDA is American, US, TGA is our regulator. So in Australia, the TGA is seen in the world as being the best regu drug regulator internationally. They're a little bit hesitant in places where the FDA and even the EMA are more bullish, right? Like thalidomide and things historically, they, are, they tend to be pretty conservative, but generally sort of follow follow the FDA or the EMA generally, but sometimes more conservative than that even. So th there obviously are some risks with taking cannabis as there are with all uh, drugs, medications. Thomas, Olaf, you've dealt a lot with post-mortem toxicology. Can cannabis cause death? Hmm. Oh. Yeah. Just clarify, illicit cannabis versus medicinal cannabis because I don't think medicinal cannabis, if used appropriately and prescribed, can cause death. So it's really important to distinguish that because that's one of the big arguments is confusing the two and including with driving as well. Yeah, it almost feels like we should talk about medicinal cannabises because there's yes. so many different types and an isolate of CBD is not the same 
as an enriched THC plant extract. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, it, but to answer and how you prescribe I, it, I don't think that. That you can die from from natural cannabis, I don't no. think it's possible. It's, it's Even if we had a a publication, a, a presentation in TF in Helsinki, which said, uh, "Yes, it is possible yeah. uh, by a heart attack or something like that," yeah. but I don't think you can die from cannabis. That's Not so easy. Even if there's a singleton case, right? The fact that you have hundreds of millions of people using this substance on a once yearly basis, at least, and yes. <laughs> almost no. No. What can happen is that you uh, have a psychosis and then you jump out of the window or so. That's possible, of course. But is that really uh, a death after cannabis? I don't think so. No, that's right. And right. it's more likely yeah. opioids that we're going to see deaths. Sorry. Yeah, look, I agree. But look, I did a review on cannabis death some years ago, which um, review was practically published around the world. And you're right, it's, it's extremely difficult to die from cannabis use, even those of using the stuff in massive amounts. But there are reports, people with having myocardial infarctions, very few of those die, uh, but enough to present a hospital with clear outcomes of an, an acute myocardial infarction and occasional strokes, minor strokes. And some other symptoms to the cannabis that can be quite dangerous. So it's not completely benign, but these are usually... Very small number of people there, not always, but most of those are on mega doses and been using it for some period of time. And some might have already pre-existing heart conditions, but it is one of the safer, by far the safest um, recreational drug that is around. And just to add, that is actually one of the contraindications to the use of medicinal cannabis. So a patient with unstable cardiovascular disease, we don't prescribe it. What other contraindications are there for the prescription of it? Yeah, pregnancy, uh, like women who are lactating, we tend not to use it. People with a history of psychotic disorder or a very strong family history where they're likely to develop a psychiatric problem associated with medicinal cannabis, particularly THC. I mentioned unstable cardiovascular disease. Uh, and this is um, medicinal cannabis products. So... The other issue is the smoking or vaporising, respiratory lung disease, uh, interactions with drugs might be a relative contraindication as well. Sometimes it's actually favourable for the patient. So, for example, uh, we may use, and I have done this, where we're actually reducing their opioids or benzodiazepines. So it's a favourable interaction where they're needing less of those drugs and we taper them off. Um, so they're the main contraindications. And, of course, THC is forbidden. You're not allowed to drive in Australia if you're taking THC, if it's detected in the oral fluids, which I'll have talked about. Except in Tasmania, there is an exemption that if you take it for medicinal purposes, medical purposes, um, and you can prove that, then you can be exempt from getting a fine and an offence. Just to add, in Switzerland, we have an additional condition where you're not allowed to prescribe cannabis, and this is if a patient is known to have suicidal tendencies, um, then it's not allowed to prescribe cannabis. Is there some kind of mental health screening that happens beforehand? Or? 
So one of the slides that I didn't get to uh, is there are a lot of extensive questions that we have to ask in the consultation, of which one, one is, you know, whether they've got a severe psychiatric problem, cardiovascular problem, etc. any of the contraindications, and also the clinical justification. What have you tried? What were the benefits? What were the side effects? Document all that. And when we get the permit, we have to actually demonstrate that as well to the TGA for a SASB permit. A lot of the people who have the kinds of conditions where they might be prescribed medicinal cannabis may already be on other drugs. We're just talking about mm -hmm. drug, drug interactions. And we've heard a lot about that at the conference, you know, polypharmacies. Very common, but can also be very dangerous uh, in some circumstances. So how do you go about changing the whole regime at the point of introducing cannabis? Look, that's a really good question. So patients who don't come who come to me and they're off those drugs are the easiest. Really easy. You, you know, start low, go slow and watch for a response. But there are a few patients that I have who do come to me with a whole range of those drugs. And there's a part of me that's like, ooh, I've got to be careful here because of the interactions and I have to say this, but they all drive. They're all breaking the law, all of them. They come to my appointments asking, even though I get them to fill out a consent form to say that then they shouldn't be driving. And I've actually told the Department of Police this, that they do drive. They're all breaking the rules all the time, and even on THC. Now, and that is a concern if also combined with alcohol, and it's all about educating the patient about the risks now, there are even common drugs that you can take that it can increase the risk of drowsiness and car crash, like antihistamines, antidepressants, and combined with alcohol, it's even worse. So it's not just your really strong ones that we think about, like the analgesics and benzodiazepines and opioids, which you're allowed to drive with, which increase the risk of crashes. Uh, but once you start introducing a cannabis into the mix, uh, it can be, you know, quite dangerous. So, so what I, we have to do with those patients is monitor them every week, make sure they're tapering off, which is what I get them to do. Uh, and it's kind of this, you know, effect of building up the CBD or little bit of THC, whatever, and getting coming off those drugs. And if it doesn't happen, we, you know, go back up again. We come off. And if they get any side effects, as I mentioned, that start low, go slow is the critical factor here. So if they start to get sedation, cognitive problems, step it back, come down. Olaf, you mentioned uh, the cutoffs in oral fluid and blood for THC while people are driving. It's, it's quite a difficult situation, as you mentioned, because we have, apart from the medicinal cannabis users, we do also have two populations in terms of chronic cannabis users and then naive cannabis users, the effects are going to be different. So the same concentration, you can't necessarily correlate it to the effects. And, and Olaf, you mentioned a couple of things that perhaps we can do to try and look at this complex picture. What are, what are your other perspectives on how we can yeah. negotiate this, this very complex issue? Yeah. No. Some combination of field sobriety testing and, you know, actual analytical testing will probably be a good start, I think. You know, field sobriety testing has its own issues. Um, you know, there's a huge human element there in terms of the enforcing officer. But, yeah, some combination of the two surely would be a good start, I think. Yeah, but it's just so difficult. Um, 
most people involved in serious crashes who might be seen to be responsible for the crash and perhaps charged with an offence, such as copper driving, for example, um, they're injured or they need to go to hospitals to check for injuries. They might be minor or they might be obviously more significant. That stops any assessment, even were possible by the police, to do a sobriety test until it's too late to, to you know, have time lapses such that there's no point doing it some hours later. You know, they were uh, only minor, if it injured to a large, small degree. Um, and at the roadside for you know, our flu testing, the police don't have resources, they're not interested in doing that sort of testing, and it's also not, not very easy to do. To do it properly does take at least two or three hours in the proper facilities. So only the, the very few cases go through, I think Victoria driving whilst impaired law with a thought they're impaired at the roadside by a preliminary assessment, they get taken to a police station. An officer who's trained to do the assessment does it. It takes that time. If the person, the police officer thinks he's impaired, the blood sample gets taken by a nurse or a doctor, another potential delay. Um, and in a lot of cases, no witnesses of any significance to say what driving behaviour occurred before the crash. So all we really have is a blood level. We can go down to lower concentration, but what does it mean? And so often I say, well, he could be impaired, but I can't determine the degree he might be impaired. It might not be measurable impairment, but you could detect if you're doing some sort of formal sobriety assessment if you're able to. And even discussion recently in Victoria about allowing medicinal cannabis users to drive and not be convicted of a THC positive offence only if they're not impaired can they drive, but you can't assess that situation whether they're impaired or not because it's just not practical. And that's where difficulty arises. And there's just no easy way around that at the moment to determine the fitness to drive in a situation where they're being interested by the police for some driving infringement or worse, a crash of some type. And that's where law says any THC use don't drive, but for how long? Uh, it depends on how much you're using in your body. So, look, there are a lot of uncertainties there. I don't have an easy solution to this. We can get some information from our studies, but it doesn't necessarily narrow it down too much to help individual cases. So um, I was involved with Dimitri on that working group with the police department on driving, and it is a really complex situation because even uh, taking benzodiazepines uh, in increases the odds ratio of a crash, and particularly when combined with alcohol, and yet they're permitted to drive. And it, there's a bit of inconsistency there. Uh, but also, as you mentioned, Tim, uh, the regular users of medicinal cannabis, where they may actually have higher levels, may, and it's the same with benzodiazepines, may actually be the better drivers than the people who just starting out and are not used to it, and same with benzodiazepines, are more likely to show impairment and therefore increase the risk of crash. The, the main issue is you could see from the statistics that we've had over 230,000 permits, that's permits, not prescriptions, permits issued to patients in Australia. So to ask to over... Now, we're talking about a lot of patients there, lots, thousands of patients. To stop driving is a huge, huge um, ask. And particularly if you're starting low, you know, start low, go slow, 
what I often find with, amongst my patients is sleeping better. They're actually work, cognitively feeling better and functioning better and their quality of life improves and they're very fit to work as well and yet they're not allowed to drive and they feel like criminals and in some ways feel discriminated as well. Maybe a very controversial take, but we are one of the only countries in the world, as far as I know, that actually has you know, presumptive roadside drug screening without any kind of probable cause preceding that, um, which is you know, very unusual. I know Tom Markell pretty well and, and Jan Romaker's lab that's done a lot of that work, um, you know, really good work. The other area that they look at beyond various um, pharmacological agents that cause impaired driving is sleep deprivation, which there's no analyte for, you know. So, we, you know, there's already all these other problems. And I do wonder if just, you know, random roadside drug testing is just a little bit overzealous when you're not testing for impairment. Yeah, but Sam, it wasn't designed to test for, to, to detect the impaired drivers from cannabis. It's only designed to prevent people using cannabis and driving and perhaps being impaired. It's like... We have alcohol testing. Uh, not all people who drink alcohol are impaired, of course. The idea is to stop excessive drinking and driving. So it was never designed to, to test for impairment. Um, and the, the penalties, whilst they're there, they're not as imminent as high as those who are detected as being impaired following a crash. Yeah, I'd, so I'd, that I'd agree. It's not often made in, in the press that it's not designed to pick up impaired drivers. Yeah, it's, it's not fit for purpose. That, that would be my argument, yeah. maybe. It's a road safety. It's trying to reduce, you know, road trauma. Same with people running red lights and doing silly things on the road, you know, the fines for those things. It's just trying to protect the wider community. How effective it is is another issue, of course, and the cost-benefit is another issue, but it was designed to try and improve road safety. Yeah, correct. Um, you said something very important. It's about sleepiness. That, that that's about 20% of all car crashes are caused by sleepiness, by uh, short sleeping episodes or so, at least in, in my country. So we should think about a combination of sleepiness and other drugs, therapeutics. And alcohol. And alcohol. And you're absolutely right. If they sleep better, they may be even fitter to drive That's what patients say. Yeah. I, I can think more clearly. I can work better. I concentrate better. So it's like the total opposite of what you expect. And remembering I'm using low doses here. Well, it's yeah. interesting you say about working better because it's not just about driving, right? No. This, this is about uh, people going to work, people participating in sport uh, and having THC or any of these other compounds yeah. in their system. Any thoughts on those other areas? Vicky, what have you observed? You uh, mentioned well, anecdotal. Everything you said was correct. And I would add that people who do long-distance driving like truckies, they should not be on the THC products because long-distance causes fatigue, sleep problems, and they're a high risk and they shouldn't they, – they would definitely increase the risk of crash unless they use it for weekends or, you know, times when they're not driving. So and and the road traffic authorities are totally aware of that. So anyone who uh, has a job that requires a lot of driving uh, shouldn't be, you know, on THC products. CBD is okay. You're allowed to drive on CBD. Any particular toxicities or adverse effects you've noticed when people start immediately when they start? Is it more common then? 
Again, no, because of that start low, go slow. When you start really low, you build it up slowly. The case example I did give was she had a flare of vertigo and we weren't sure if it was the medicinal cannabis and maybe it was, but what we did was we just stopped it and we went down again and went below what we might have thought. Um, and, and of course, you've got to have the clinical benefits. So if there's no clinical benefits, patients won't pay for it. They won't pursue it. Um, as we were talking about, it's a pretty safe drug. Uh, there was a slide that I had on toxicity. Uh, they can tolerate very high doses without um, uh, too many side effects, but you can get common side effects like you do with medication. And again, you just taper it off. You come down the dosage. Now let's be clear. It, it's much more dangerous to drive in the first two weeks of an antidepressant or so. It's much more dangerous than starting with very low doses low of doses. of yeah. THC or the CBD. That's and we could give the warning to patients. You know, don't you know? Be cautious in the first couple of weeks to four weeks until we work it all out, just in case you have a side effect. So there's a lot of precaution and advice and that's part of the education we have to give to GPs and I know GPs who are actually doing the wrong thing they put patients straight on to THC and you know I hear it and I go yeah they shouldn't do that you know they they need to and that's why we want to educate GPs properly so they're prescribing it properly. Is there any evidence either in your own experience or just more generally of people who are taking medicinal cannabis abusing it? No. And the reason being, there's a number one factor, it's so expensive. You see, it's cheaper to just get it from the black market. <laughs> if they're going to abuse it, they'll just get it from the black market. It's much cheaper. You know, you're talking about something that might be, I don't know, $50 even for a medicinal cannabis product versus $280. So generally the ones who commit that sort of money say, this is precious and therefore they want to start low, go slow because they want to get the benefits on a lower dose because then that product lasts longer. So the bottom answer is no, they don't abuse it in any way. But I did have one patient who I could see there was an abuse disorder developing and she had a really complex pain problem with a lot of emotional overlay and she was escalating though. And then she came to me and said, I think I need to go and vaporize her. And I thought, what? So I could see, I think she was one of these patients who would have, if I'd continued, developed a, almost like a cannabis abuse disorder. And that's where I stopped. And I said, no, no, that's, you know, and she, she, she just had joint pains, which doesn't, if she was a palliative care patient, cancer patient, of course, I would move into the vaporizing for pain relief before if they're terminally unwell and they're, you know, they're going to die. Uh, but this was a young woman and I could see we were escalating and, and then the, uh -huh. but this is one woman out of, I don't know, you know, a hundred to 200 patients, not, not very common. Yeah. Cannabis use disorder was added to the DSM a few years ago as a specific um, substance use disorder. And it's, yeah, it's not exactly very prevalent. I don't think even amongst people who regularly use cannabis, yes. um, they're pretty, cessation's pretty easy for most people. There's no, no real issues there. We get this weird phenomenon sometimes among cannabis users with uh, hyperemesis. Have you observed that in people that you've prescribed it to? Is, is that a common effect? Well, funny enough, it's one of the therapeutic indications if um, patients suffer from chemotherapy-induced nausea, vomiting, 
um, or even severe nausea, vomiting for other reasons, except pregnancy. We don't use it. Uh, the THC component in the medicinal cannabis can actually help, and I've seen that happen. It's amazing. They go through chemotherapy without the nausea and vomiting. Uh, but can it cause – sometimes patients don't like the taste of it and – you know, find it difficult and we have to change products or the form that it's taken. So, yes, it can, and we just change the products. You're talking about this hyperemesis syndrome that's, you know, very unusual and rare, right? Just this constant vomiting, yeah, yes, that happens occasionally. Yeah. People I've, use it I've never seen that. Right. It, it's no. pretty rare. It's only been picked up in what would be equivalent, you know, for any other drug class of sort of phase four post-marketing surveillance because there's so many people in the US using cannabis now. And it's, yeah, it's really odd. I've, heard, I've read stories. I've never met anyone with the condition, but um, people are just forced to vomit constantly after using for an extended period. And the only things that stop it are um, hot baths and um, sometimes capsaicin or other trip V1 agonists um, taken topically. It's really, really odd. So, like, you've, there's stories of people who literally will just sit in the bath for 12 hours, keep emptying and refilling the bath because as soon as they get out, they're just, you know, vomiting constantly. It's pretty, pretty unpleasant. Yeah. Very rare, thankfully. So what about CBD? Does that only impair at high doses? Is there evidence that that can impair at all at uh, lower doses? So once again, if you start low, go slow, well tolerated, especially CBD, as long as we've given the precautions and we're not given when there's contraindications like the you know epileptics and uh, interaction with the drugs, um, we don't see a lot of impairment with CBD, uh, and if there is, it tends to be mild, you know, mild symptoms, and we just cut back again. But again, in combination with sleepiness or in combination with alcohol or other therapeutics, that might be a problem. You have to be aware that uh, the effects are not additive, but more like potentiate each other, so that might be a risk. And we've just got uh, a minute or so to go. But talking about education, we've talked about educating doctors, those in the medical profession. What about educating uh, employers and, and the public in general, public. Pe people who are dealing with people who are taking medicinal cannabis? Yeah, great idea. Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> <laughs> Quick answer. Yes, yes. All right, well, let me uh, thank the panel. Put your hands together, please. Uh, I think that was a really great conversation. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.